listening to Radio Tedland. Heading Nowhere, written by Patrick Cullen. Chapter 8. Built on Sand. I spent the next year living in Tel Aviv, for the most part back in the hostel on Dizengoff Square where I'd stayed before. I was part of a hard core of travellers, working cash in hand, typically labouring in construction, painting and decorating or washing up in restaurants. Usually a job would last a day or two, occasionally a week or longer. If you were very lucky, you could get a more or less full-time job until you were ready to move on or had screwed up too many times and got fired. In the hostel, most of the rooms slept eight people with four bunk beds. The bottom bunk was the best as you could tuck a sheet under the top mattress and let it hang down to give yourself some privacy. Generally, I shared a room with people in a similar position to me, working cash in hand at whatever job they could find to survive. We would often go out together on a Friday night, but most evenings we spent around the hostel, sat in our room or out on the balcony, drinking, smoking and talking. Most of those like me who worked while staying at the hostel were from the UK and Ireland, though there were also a number of South Africans. The first post-apartheid elections were fast approaching, and many whites felt the need to follow the democratic transition from a safe distance. I felt part of something, living with others I had so much in common with. None of us had more than a fragile grip on our transient lives, and there was a feeling of shared equality, fueled by an excessive alcohol consumption. We could all lose our jobs from one day to the next, or not get paid the wages we were owed, and none of us had the safety net of access to the welfare state or a rich relative. So we drank and talked about what might have been and what might one day be. We weren't friends as such, but we looked out for each other, helping to find work where possible and offering backup if someone ran into problems out drinking. A couple of months after arriving back in Tel Aviv, walking down a street by the hostel, I bumped into Jim from Cyprus, together with Christina, the woman he'd told me about. She was Russian, with bleached blonde hair, quite pretty, but wearing too much makeup for my taste. We got talking, and I was invited back to the flat she shared with Jim and her daughter a couple of streets away. I soon became a frequent guest at Christina's. Being in somebody's home rather than the hostel was a welcome change, and I was invited round in the evenings to drink vodka and whiskey and smoke pot. The latter were smuggled through the city to her flat by an older American man she was friends with. He was very careful about doing this, almost to the point of paranoia as the penalties for dealing drugs in Israel were severe. He would tell stories about the famous people he'd supposedly sold cocaine to in America, and a handheld machine for grinding rocks of the drug into sniffable powder he claimed to have invented. He would smuggle pot, and in all likelihood other drugs too, hidden in matchboxes in his sock. He would sometimes call off, ringing from a phone box to tell us about undercover policemen he claimed were on his tail. As far as I know, he never got caught, although he'd always tell us about the evasive procedures he'd been forced to undertake. I met another American through Christina called Bill. He also sold drugs, but was quieter than the other guy and kept himself in the background. Though he said less, his few words seemed to carry greater weight than the narrative stream that would flow from his compatriot. He worked on bigger deals and at one point even asked if I could help sell a large amount of cocaine in connection with someone from the Nigerian embassy. I knew some people at the hostel that used the drug, but nobody who had the sort of money the deal demanded. 
I felt surprised, though somewhat flattered he should ask. Perhaps he was desperate. I met Christina's young daughter too. Seven years old, she had a room for herself and seemed relatively unaffected by the drunkenness and drug use taking place, apart from a tendency to wear a lot of dark makeup like her mother. Christina described herself as an exotic dancer, but in reality, she was a cool girl. She'd work in the evenings after her daughter was put to bed, get dressed and put on her makeup, then wait in the sofa for the phone to ring, with a drink or two, then finally she'd get the call, and a quarter of an hour later, the car would be outside with her driver waiting to take her away. Wherever the driver took her, when she finished dancing, the audience could pay to fuck her. Often it would be a businessman or two in a hotel room, occasionally a bachelor party, when the coming groom, then all his friends could pay the money, then queue up and wait in line to take their turn. After a few weeks, Christina called me at the hostel and tearfully told me Jim had left her. She said she needed help, and within days I moved in. A friend at the hostel advised me to be careful, though stopped just short of warning me against moving in with her. My decision to move out of the hostel was influenced by Christina seducing me the evening after Jim had left her. As she was giving me a massage, she pointed out a star in the sky she claimed had only appeared since I'd arrived in her life. Then, examining my back, she said the moles and birthmarks covering it were a map of the stars and the universe, showing where I came from. I said nothing, just lay naked on my front as I was examined, wondering silently what it meant for the four moles I'd had removed some years before. Having had what turned out to be ungrounded worries, they might be cancerous. Were these surgically removed moles actually planets, maybe even whole solar systems that now no longer existed? Though I inwardly ridiculed her seduction technique, at the same time I allowed myself to be affected by it, primarily in the hope that as a prostitute, as I knew to all intents and purposes she was, Christina would help me learn more about sex. We would sleep in the living room, arranging the sofa cushions on the floor, and to begin with, I put the cushions so we could lie together. With only a handful of exceptions, though, any hopes of free sex with a Russian prostitute were dashed. She was too tired or too drunk, otherwise her back hurt, and no matter what, sex was the last thing on her mind when she came home. I stayed for six weeks, and towards the end of that time it was primarily to look after her daughter. Christina would go on frequent drink and drug binges when she wasn't working. Partly, I suppose, to get over and erase the memory of what she'd done to earn her money whilst working. She had originally hoped I would be able to help her stop drinking and taking drugs, but I was unable to support her in any way. I was fascinated by the lifestyle she had become so weary of and wanted to drink more and take different drugs rather than stop. For all my desire to experience the authenticity of Tel Aviv's neon-lit, downtrodden pavements, in Christina's eyes, I was young and naive. She soon became bored and would entertain herself by manipulating me. Once she encouraged me to call my mother in England and ask whether she'd considered calling me Gabriel at any point while pregnant. I did so while Christina listened, and we both heard my mother answer no with an uncertain, wondering tone that asked more questions than that which it answered. Another evening, when Christina wasn't working, I awoke from a drunken nap on the sofa to find her on the balcony, having an argument with someone on the street. She came in and said I should go and tell the old man standing out there to go away. She didn't want to see him anymore. I did, using a lot of swear words and threats, while he asked whether I knew who he was, before he finally got the message 
and jumped into a waiting car and drove off. When I went back into the living room, Christina told me the old man had been the seventh most powerful mafia boss in the city. He had previously been the third most powerful, but was old, and now on the way down. She'd once been one of his favourites, but now she didn't want to have anything to do with him. I occasionally still slept at the hostel, but for the most part stayed at Christina's. It was easier to find new work at the hostel though, and before long I was without work and struggling to make ends meet. Making the financial situation more difficult, Christina was only an occasional contributor to the household budget. Sometimes her binges meant she didn't come back until the day after she'd finished working, typically drunk and claiming not to have any money left. I felt a responsibility to have food on the table for her daughter, and the days when I had neither money nor work, I would wake early and make my way to the pavement outside a downtown hostel called Momo's. There, I'd stand in line with all the others in need of work and wait for prospective employers to drive up from around 6.30. Builders, entrepreneurs, warehouse owners and restaurateurs, those that needed cheap labour for a day or two would walk up and down, then choose those that seemed best fitted to the task in hand. This could include squeezing biceps to check on a potential worker's strength, and then when chosen, the negotiations could begin. How many hours, how much money, and what type of work? Would it be paid each day, and was a meal included? At the end of it all, though, we were all for sale, and so desperate for money, we rarely said no. In this way, I once got the job of excavating a cellar. First, I would have to empty its contents, after which I'd break up the concrete cellar floor. There was an old man living there when I started the job, a tramp, I thought. He had a long beard and was almost blind, drank a lot, and talked a language I didn't understand. I chased him out so I could get on with the job, but he kept coming back, and it was only after I'd shouted and sworn at him for most of the first day that he finally got the message and stayed away. Then I got to emptying the place. It turned out it had been a basement synagogue, and furniture, books, folders, and sacred ornaments, I threw all of it away. I found a half-full bottle of what I thought might be holy wine that I drank in the evening, thick and tasting old. I thought about the old man I'd chased away, wondering now whether he'd been something more than a tramp, a representation of some god perhaps I had now made homeless. When I finally got to break up the floor, I found it ironic to discover beneath the concrete, the foundations of what had once been God's house, were built on sand.